0: Hello, welcome to episode 120 of Lunar Poetry Podcasts, my name is David Turner. Yeah, as regular listeners will know this is the last episode of 2018, and the last episode in fact until maybe April 2019 as I'm taking a break after four years of fairly intensive podcasting. Those of you that need to supplement your poetry podcast hit should head over to our companion podcast A Poem a week which you can find wherever you found this podcast. My wife Lizzie and very occasionally me will continue to bring you a poem every Sunday. As well as that, you can go over to the Luna website and take a look at our poetry podcast finder, a directory of over 30 poetry and spoken word podcasts produced in the UK and Ireland, with more due to be added in the coming months. Do get in touch and let us know if you'd like to hear me talking to anyone in particular in 2019. I don't know whether I should be whispering or not. There's two little squirrels in front of me. I don't want to frighten them. The perils of recording podcasts in English parks. The main reason I've chosen now as a good time to take a break from the series is that our current Arts Council England funding has come to an end. So I just want to say a very quick thank you to them for their support. We've produced so much that just wouldn't have been possible without that money, not least a huge improvement in sound quality in the last five episodes. By a dynamic M58 microphones if you're wondering. This was never part of any wider plan but a recent development has meant that I'll be using the upcoming break to get together my first book of mainly poetry, which will be published in 2019 by Bristol-based publishers of innovative and experimental poetry. Hesterglock Press, I really like Paul and Sarah at Hesterglock so I'm looking forward to working with them a lot. While we're on the subject of financial support and books just a quick reminder that our anthology of poems by former podcast guests Why Poetry the Lunar Poetry Podcast Anthology is available for £9.99 from Verve Poetry Press and allegedly some bookshops. Buying that book will directly support covering the cost of transcribing future episodes. Get over to lunarpoetrypodcast.com to find over 80 episode transcripts, including this episode. That's the admin done. Today's guest is Bristol-based poet Tom Sastry. I met up with Tom at his home in October 2018 to chat about the links between his performance style and his writing. His debut pamphlet, Complicity and far too much chat about seagulls, completely my fault, as happens quite a lot when recording there was something we wanted to chat about but weren't sure if we could because we weren't sure when the episode would be going out and we didn't want to give away any secrets, but I think by the time you've downloaded this episode it should have been officially announced that Tom's debut collection A Man's House Catches Fire will be published by Nine Arches Press in October 2019. Which is great news, because he's fantastic, as you're about to hear. Anyway, that's it for announcements of poetry books coming out in 2019. How about we get onto the episode, eh? Here's Tom with what I now assume is the titular poem from his upcoming debut.
1: I was suddenly uncomfortably hot, but I have always had these surges, and at first I thought the smell of smoke was just me going off my head which I have learnt to expect. So I closed the curtains, undressed, turned the heating off, and lay in the last of my stillness, watching the shadow of a flame play on the far wall until the shadow reddened, and I could see no way out. It has been a month now, with the fire still burning, and me not dead, and no help coming, so today I stepped outside, smelling more than ever of myself. My oldest friend was passing. She said, Is it that time? Are the houses of men burning too? I said, you're mistaken, nothing is burning, and I went back into my house, which is still on fire. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you for
0: joining me on the podcast. We'll get round to you introducing yourself. I'm not going to introduce you because I'm terrible at introductions, but I didn't mention this before we started recording. I'm a bit my mine's a bit distracted so I was walking down Broadmead just on my way here so for those that don't know that's like the sort of main shopping street in Bristol and I was eating a pasty that I'd bought from Greg's because I'd gotten out of bed and not had any breakfast and I'd rushed out and then suddenly needed something to eat I felt something approaching me from behind and a seagull landed on my head and took the pasty out of my hand right in the view of everyone and it struck me for that moment i was living in a tom sastry poem because not only was that ridiculous that a seagull might have hit me on the head and stolen my pasty and everybody laughed at me but it also involved the melancholy and loss that exists through a lot of your poems In that, i'd lost this i was very hungry and i'd lost my pasty but also the shame that i'd felt from uh the school kids laughing at me that it was a really it was a terrible time for it to happen because it was a school run time as well so there were a lot of uh 12 year old laughing at this grown man that had been hit on the head by a seagull and had his pasty stolen. <laughs> it's,
1: it's real life. Um, I, I, I think I should approach Greg's with that story and, and see, you know, I know that Joe Bell and others have, have, um, have had work from nationwide. I, I feel I could be the face of Greg's.
0: I think, yeah, you could be the face of Greg's. And um, I don't know, I'd, it's that thing of how you credit your work. I think I'd rather not be known as the the man that had the seagull hit him I mean I've made it known now on the podcast but I trust my audience to not laugh at me
1: I think I I trust my audience to laugh at me that's um (laughs) I mean what I've done I mean this is I don't know if this touches on 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 how page poets can can function in a in a a spoken word setting but um in Bristol I think I'm almost certainly best known as a spoken word artist artist rather than a a a poet outside Bristol I'm a a page poet um and that Essentially, what I do is I read these miserable, very slow, very pagey poems, and then I just tell lots of jokes against myself in between. And this seems to work tolerably well. So, um, so no, I don't know where I'd be without Seagulls crapping on my head and um, and without my Im- imaginary fantasy life as the voice of Greggs. Um, I think it's also for me as a
0: Cockney that's moved to Bristol... In the, in the within the last, or it's a year now that my wife and I have both been in Bristol. It feels like I've finally been through some sort of initiation test. In a seagull's whacked me on the head and nicked my pasty. I feel like I I belong now.
1: Yeah. When I I mean, I'm from the southeast of England. I'm not from London. Um, I'm from that sort of donut where London is too close for these places to have any life of their own, but too far away for the for, for you to actually be in London. And I I, I think it's a fairly unenviable condition living in the, the commuter fringe of London so I'm very pleased to have left um, yeah so and I, when I first moved to Bristol, there's a poem I'm not going to read, it's dreadful but it's one of the first poems I, I wrote and it was about that feeling when I was, I was in Montpellier in Bristol for anyone who's from Bristol, which was the first place I lived when I was in Bristol and I was standing at the top of Richmond Road looking over, you got quite a view from there you can see the hospital incineration tower, lots of other beautiful landmarks of of, of Cottam at the other side of, the, uh, of, of Gloucester Road. And um, the seagulls were just screaming away. And it was actually the first time I'd heard seagulls inland because it was just at the point where, where the pigeons were still in control of most of the country at that time. Um, the seagulls hadn't yet really challenged their empire. Whereas now you feel a bit sorry for pigeons because a little pigeon or a little fat pigeon will be pecking away at some grain. And then all of a sudden, 60 seagulls will, will threaten to peck its eyes out. And and so now pigeons are the underdogs. But at the time, pigeons were the evil empire. And, and 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 seagulls were kind of a bit exotic. They were from the sea. And I heard these seagulls clacking overhead and I thought, I'm by the sea. And it was another couple of weeks before I actually tried to get to the sea from Bristol. And if you look at the map, it looks like Bristol is right by the seaside. But um, if you try and get to the seaside from Bristol, it's it's harder than you think. My wife and I both moved to Bristol. I had this idea
0: because I used to live in a small town in the south of Norway called Kristensand. And um, I really, it, having been born in central London and, and, and then grown up in the southeast of England and only sort of experiencing the sea after a two and a half hour drive with my nan and my aunt and then smoking in a Ford Fiesta and then drinking cups of tea as the rain lashed at the windows of the cafe. That was my only experience of the sea. Then living in Kristensand, I, I really understood why people had this connection with it because i always felt it was like it's where just the land stopped and it was a barrier but you you got a sense then that was people's connection to it you know people that had grown up there it was actually an extension of their landscape and we had exactly the same thing i thought we'll move to bristol we'll be really close to the sea and i haven't i've seen it once in a year because it's such a pain to get to i think we had to go down to uh What's the one on from Western Supermare?
1: Burnham? Uh, Burnham, see, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe or, or Breen. I don't know. Yeah, it's a long way away, isn't it?
0: Because yeah, you look on the map, and that's actually just the Channel, the Bristol Channel. You can see, isn't it? And yeah, it's not really. No one wants to touch that. No,
1: not not unless the council has dumped several trillion tons of sand from somewhere else on it, on the mud, and then then it, then it can be tolerable. No, I mean I don't want I don't want, I, I I don't want to mock the the the, the seaside towns of Britain because because they have hell of a of of time, but. Um, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's not. It's not what you expect. But then again, I think that whole. It's a, I blame poetry for this, actually, or a particular notion of poetry, which comes from from the Romantics, I suppose. I think a lot of a lot of English people have this idea that they should enjoy blustery, elemental weather, and I, and, and this is entirely this is because they are victims of poetry, and they think that 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 having lots of cold rain and hail whipped into your face by a strong breeze, whilst you um um shudder in the comfort of your knockoff, not quite Gore-Tex anorak is, is is actually is actually you getting in touch with nature it's not it's it's nature telling you to fuck off um, <laughs> and you shouldn't do it but um and so we have this idea that if we subject ourselves to the the, the unpleasant aspects of, of, of being outdoors that we are in some way actually getting closer to the land and moving away from us the suburban people that we've become and i think this is almost the exact opposite of the truth um i think i think what we actually i think you know
0: it's an interesting idea actually that poetry is something we need to endure um, like, the, like the British seascape.
1: Oh no, no, I, no! I think I think poetry is something we should enjoy. I think the idea of poetry—that's what I mean. Yeah, is is, is, of... is, is is something. Basically, everything that people who aren't deeply immersed in poetry think poetry is is dreadful. You know, kind of rhyming doggle on 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 greetings cards. The idea of being passionate in a hailstorm. Um, all of these things are just completely ridiculous. And I, I'm not in any way criticizing actual popular poetry done by actual popular poets. But the but the the whole kind of idea received idea of poetry uh, an unenthusiastic teacher lecturing on um on what a poet really meant to say all, all this stuff it's, it's 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 not very good and of course there's yeah the poetry has a dreadful image problem but also rather like britain actually well actually it's, maybe maybe this is why, why you know actually this is true of britain itself of course britain has a dreadful image problem largely because of its own misdeeds to be fair but then again there's lots of dreadful poetry for which people ought to atone but the brand persists, you know, people continue to believe in poetry, people continue to believe in Britain, even though if you grow up in Australia or New Zealand, there's no particular reason to believe that Britain even exists. I mean, it probably doesn't touch your consciousness very much, you just have faith that that, that, that Britain is there, and one time in your life you might visit it, and, and you might be conned by all those old poets into going for a walk on that clifftop and getting whipped with with horrible icy rain in your horrible knock-off cortex um, anorak, but... <laughs> Actually it's you know, it's it's the idea, the was the, the kind of mythical idea of, of of the place actually is more real to you than the real thing. And I think that's true of most people with poetry. And then when you actually engage with poetry you realise it's much more complicated and multifaceted and interesting and exciting than you were ever led to believe. Um, so I'd like to think that some of the poetry that's being written today will replace the romantics in the you know and, and, and you know, will sweep away that received idea of what poetry is really about. All of a sudden in two hundred years' time people will be taking Clichés from contemporary poetry that we don't even recognise yet and going, Oh my god, is that what poetry is? I'm not interested in that. I don't want to know anything about that. And the um the real poets of two thousand two hundred will will then have to fight against those cliches in order to establish that they are they they are part of a real living vital art form. Um, I'm just
0: trying to imagine what the uh modern day cliches will or what will become cliches in the future. Maybe we'll think on that. But do you feel within your own writing do you feel any obligation to just try and dispel some of that sort of myth around poetry? Not so much, like you were saying, with the individual poems, because you're going to find, if you look deeply enough, you'll find poems that you love in all styles. It, that's, it's not a problem necessarily with individual poets, it's just collectively, this idea. But do you feel like you're writing towards combating that in any way? Um,
1: I don't think you can really do that. I think I think it's, it's interesting because, I mean, as I say, Bristol is a city where, the poetry scene, or certainly the the live poetry scene, is, is very much a spoken word scene. There's really not, and it's a huge. But it's most of my social life. To be honest, is what I do: is I go out and I read poems and I talk to people who like poetry, which is which is very nice. It means I can live in this bubble, uh, you know, where where everyone actually likes and appreciates poetry, and finds it a helpful thing. That so is a positive influence in their life. I think the most important thing is not so much it's not so much what poetry is; it's how you should approach it. And I think the absolute the, the absolute worst way to approach poetry is reverentially. You know, like the meaning of the poem is already established. And people people in the know know exactly what it's about and you don't know what it's about and your job is to recreate in your own mind this correct idea that people have already got. And, and I think that's the absolute worst way of approaching poetry. And I think we've all, I think everyone who's listening to this presumably has an interest in poetry and we will all remember people who who were very good at sidestepping that idea of a poem as a puzzle that needs to be solved, and we all remember, also remember other people who were not so good at it. Um, I mean the nice thing about that actually is just that it's social and I think people um, it's much easier to understand the meaning of something if it actually occurs in a social context. People get together at an open mic, they share their poems. Some people perhaps have been doing it for a little longer than others, but there's a nice equality I think in the poetry scene there isn't no a sense you know I'm, I'm the you know, I'm the feature act therefore. You know you you approach me on your knees, you know with humility, and then please say, can can I can I ask you know, can I buy a copy of your book? Well, of course, I will sell you a copy of, of my book. Thank you very much. You know, it's not like it's not like that. Uh, and I appreciate that very much. Um, and I think that kind of makes sense of things because actually it becomes an act of communication. It becomes something that people do and share and talk about, and it becomes part of their lives. And I think that's that's a very healthy way of sharing poetry. And I think if I were I can't imagine sitting in my remote farmhouse, penning my romantic lyrics and then sending them off to magazines and then the ox cart comes by three months' time and I find out what anyone else has made of my poetry and I think that's, I have no idea, you know, no wonder they're all mad. Um, It's a dreadful way of of, of sharing and understanding poetry. So even if you're writing in isolation,
0: I mean presumably even if you're sitting in a group of writers at some sort of writing retreat, you're still writing in isolation because you're writing in your own head. Mm. Do you still, is, is writing poetry specifically, is that still a communal act for you?
1: Um, well, sharing it is. Writing is. I don't. I don't know the answer to this. I mean, people ask. I mean, it's a quite a common question. Or who do you write for? And I, I have absolutely no idea. It, it may be. Say,
0: this might be a good point. And then you can refute this if if, it, if it's not true. But you seem like a poet that seems to write. You seem to attend a lot of public events. You seem to share a lot of your writing. You share a variety of your
1: writing. I think if you think about page and performance, there's a big Venn diagram. Imagine a big Venn diagram and the bit in the middle, which really can survive either as, you know, either on the page or in performance is what you might call oral poetry. It's not necessarily written to be read in a particularly in a particular style. It's not necessarily read to be performed, but it is very much written to be to be heard and then obviously at one extreme you've got poetry which really is very much bound on the page probably for the most mundane reason that the layout is an important part of what the, you know is, is 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 a very important part of the poem and obviously it's very hard to recreate layout without enormous powerpoint and i don't think we're yet ready for a style of poetry performance that involves um, um the use of powerpoint in order to show the audience what the layout would look like i think i think we'll never be ready for that actually and um, and on the other side you've got poetry which is so theatrical that it is really impossible to imagine it having anything like its intended effect without without the performance. Most poetry, whether it's described as page or performance or spoken word or whatever, is actually in the middle. It's oral poetry and it's there to be read out loud. That doesn't mean that all poets are natural performers, of course. Some people are terrified by the idea of getting on stage and performing. Some people are not terrified and perhaps should be, and I may be one of those. But... Without meaning to, I, my, my my work very much falls into that bit in the middle where it's you know it's not it's written to be read on the page, but it's also written to be to be heard out loud. And I think I suspect that's because I compose without even meaning to by ear. I don't do it, but I imagine people who are very adventurous with layout have a much more, in addition to that, oral sense. They also have a much more developed visual sense of the poem as they're as they're putting it together, which is something I just don't have it's, it's not really a concern of yours how well, it's, or, how, so, or it's not a it's not a something i can do it's not, something I can, it's, it, it's, it's not something i can do i just don't have that kind of um you know i mean i'm i'm actually as a um as a poet on the page i am inc- astonishingly conservative you know if it's not all justified to the left it's extremely rare and that's that's largely because i have absolutely no idea what i will be doing if i did anything else but i'm i'm right 200 300 400 years ago you know everything justified to the left you know if i'm in doubt about laying out a poem i just what i do is i i record myself reading it and i reproduce yeah i use use the i use lineation and stanza breaks to reproduce as closely as i can the way i've read it if i can vary that in a way that adds value i will but i think my default is usually it should look quite similar to the way that that's interesting it's very similar to what I do
0: most of my writing just comes uh, visually just Mm -hmm. appears as blocks of text it's just blocks of prose but Mm -hmm. I do exactly the same thing I'll read something that's why live readings are important to me is I'll read them and as I naturally want to put breaks in I'll put spaces in the poem based on how I naturally want it to be read yeah which is more I suppose it can seem quite dictatorial towards the reader, but it's more of a suggestion. I mean, like it's not, I don't intend it to be so hard and fast, but it's very difficult. I suppose that's a problem I have with the idea of something maybe being printed down. It becomes very concrete, and it's mm. not as fluid as I'd like things to remain.
1: Yeah, I, I, I will often do something different when I can see a purpose to it, and when I, when I really want to, to scramble that. But um, I sort of feel that there's two things you can get wrong. You can either get it wrong visually or you can reproduce the poem on paper in a way that is unreadable, by which I mean unreadable out loud. And I don't feel very confident as far as the visual aspect is concerned, but at least I know that if I reproduce it as I would read it, I can't get more than one of those two things wrong. At least I know that it is readable in that pattern because I read it myself. So, so there's a kind of comfort in that. And so I sort of think that's that's the baseline. And if I can improve upon that, I will. But if I'm really stuck with the layout of a poem, I usually think, fine, it's because it wants to be reproduced in that in that form. I think we might take a second poem. Yeah, a second reading, please. Okay. Um, this poem is called 32 Lines on Loss. Everywhere they are selling the sun in orange juice, the sex in perfume, thirty pence from a box of fish fingers tasting of sea. I lost my glasses. I left them on the table in the cafe because I was tired of looking at billboards and wanted some thoughts of my own and because I liked the fog of it. But when I went to leave, they were gone. It was Sunday, and the opticians were closed. I soon realised That the world is full of monsters travelling too fast. One of these is time. I spent a lot of time sitting that day. I drank a lot of coffee because that is what I do when I sit. Perhaps I drank too much. I did a lot of thinking and I wanted it to last longer but the sun set and the sun rose and I called in sick and got some new glasses. They filmed me in the frames. I looked like a total dick staring straight ahead like the world's toothiest convict. You always do. You accept it. They said it would take an hour to make them up, so I went out into the fog and found a cafe. I just killed time and checked my phone. But when I went to go, I couldn't get up. My body was a sandbag. I cried like a doll. I must have really hated the idea of functioning again, I hated it so much, I hated it so much that for a moment the surprise of how much I hated it stopped everything, even the hate. Thank you very much,
0: I'm really glad you, I really love that poem, I'm really glad you read that, Um, I'm always very keen to not request poems from people because I feel like you sort of, um, I want, the po- I want the guests to represent themselves in the moment. And it's important, I think, that there's a, a space in the podcast for people to change their mind about their own work and just read whatever feels right in the moment. But had I requested one, it would have definitely been that. And also in this really awkward way of um, we, we can't ever dispel these notions of what it is to do something, I'll do air quotes here, properly. And when you're running a podcast, it's, it's hard not to ape radio shows mm. and talk of things like natural segues. And there should be some sort of klaxon that uh, shows you up for the fraud that you are because this is all random and stuff. But it is a natural segue into talking about your pamphlet there because you picked it up and oh, read from yes. it, which is called Complicity, published by Smith Doorstop as part of their Laureate's Choice series. Maybe you could just explain a little bit about how that came about and then I have a few questions about that.
1: Yes, um, it came about owing to... Um um, I bought my way in, basically. I, I attended the uh, masterclass at Tinueth, the uh, National Literature Centre of Wales. Uh, it was uh, taught by Caroline Duffy and Gillian Clark. And at the end of that session, uh, Caroline Duffy asked me if I would like to be put forward for the lawyer's Choice, which I hadn't... You know, I think I'd, I'd vaguely heard of it, but I didn't really know what it was. And then several months later, I was contacted by Peter Sans- Sansom saying, um, OK, we're doing this. I gather you want to do this. Do you have some poems? And that's interesting actually because I a lot of poets and I don't know I'm not an expert in publishing I mean you need to know lots of poets actually do I do have an involvement in publishing and I don't a lot of poets feel that even for first collections and even for first pamphlets there's a lot of pressure to theme and great which I think, you know, you kind of think, Goodness me, first publication. You know, a bit of greatest hits is all right, you know, people are finding their voice, that that's you know but apparently I I, I and I'm I'm in no position to, to dispute it. There there's there seems to be a feeling that that those who have a coherent set of poems around a coherent theme have an advantage over those who don't. And I didn't have to worry about that. I, I'd been told that, you know I'd been offered a pamphlet as part of the series and and I spoke briefly to, to Peter about it and I said do you want me to try and come up with a, a coherent grouping or do you want my best poems as i as I, and he said i want your best poems so that that's what the pamphlet is and the title complicity is i thought there must be two or three poems which yeah there must be a title of one of the poems which could <laughs> under certain conditions be the title of at least one of the others and i literally went through all the titles and thought there's a poem in the pamphlet called Complicity, and I could think of at least one other other poem in the pamphlet which could also have been called Complicity had I chosen to do so, and that's how it came to be called Complicity. <laughs> that's it. that's that's the story of it. I I like the implications of that the question of like
0: who. I mean, this is also this is a very common thing in poetry in that we're putting undue weight on a title which was almost just something that was just a result of a desperate yeah. search for a word to come up with for a title which i think a lot of titles are anyway but if you do want to put your own weight on it like the complicity of uh, who does that refer to is it the reader or yourself or or the publishers or, or but as someone like myself who doesn't have any formal educational background in literature um i don't have this insight that a lot of people that have been through their mas or or phds in which they have set whole seminars on how to put together a pamphlet uh, submission. Presumably, you haven't been through that either because of the way you sort of approached it. I've been lucky enough to run little collections of twenty poems, say, that I might submit to go into a pamphlet, and I've been surprised by the amount of fee- feedback that I've gotten. Like, what connects these poems? Mm-hmm. And the, sort of the, these questions you were asking yourself there. Like, what happens if you're a, a writer that doesn't ha- isn't concerned with connections between what you're like? I'm very happy with disparate ideas and yeah. like I don't really want any. I mean there are themes because it's me sort yeah. of being We're, quite anxious in my own head but that's, I can't, I, know, I could call you, you it me could be, being anxious in my could, own head
1: You could be a great singles band and the last thing you want is to be told that you need to put a concept album Yes <laughs> I hate concept albums actually
0: <laughs> There's something that doesn't sit right about this idea of maybe having a conceit to what the collection may be yeah. at the outset this is something I've been thinking about a lot as well it's Sort of like the very academic side of what poetry is seems to me that someone else views your work and decides what it means that sort of mm. seems the very bones of academia yeah. is that you don't decide what the themes are in your work and I as a writer don't particularly want to be part of that like I don't agree with it so I'd, I wouldn't want to set out to look at a body of work but I suppose that's also denying the very reality that you, someone's got to try and sell that
1: and they're going to need a tagline yeah. or a sales pitch. I, I, I do think that's different. I think the academic thing... I mean, it's slightly bizarre in an art form like poetry, where if you take all of the money that there is in academia for for teaching writing, but also even more so for writing about writing and for critical writing, and you compare it to the amount of money there is actually available for poets for writing, the resources available for the two are so vastly out of proportion to each other. Um, and I think sometimes... We get a bit confused. We complain about some poetry being academic. But actually, I think the real complaint is that we, as a society, we seem to value writing about writing more than we value writing itself. And I think that's a slightly mean thing to say, because, of course, why should those two things be in competition? Why should why should critical writing be in competition with creative writing any more than, for example, um, spending on armaments or any number of other things that we might wish that, 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 that attracted less public funding? But um, nevertheless, I think... It is odd. It is isn't It creates a slightly odd situation that there are more people who are experts in writing about the writing of others, than there are people who are expert in actually creating work, and massively so, in fact. And I think that I think we just have to be aware of the fact that that can create a slightly over analytical framework. But I think the publisher's imperative is slightly different, as you say. It's, it's. I want an angle to sell this, and I think that can be a little bit dubious. One of the things I've noticed as a as a, as a mixed race poet is that most of the poets. Who are who are published, especially the younger poets. Not that I'm that young, but most especially especially younger poets who look like me who are published, there is an angle to their work. Part of the way their work is presented to audiences in in blurbs for performance gigs or for or or blurbs publications is very much about race and race politics, and that's fantastic in the sense that we can talk about these things in in the poetry world and in other places they're taboo but it's also slightly oppressive in that it suggests that if you come from that background that's all you you're really there to write about and speak about and 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 I think that's another that's an example of the kind of marketing angle thing perhaps being indulged more than it should do if we were really aware of what we're doing by by doing that I think the theming is also the same again if you're if you've got that academic background and you can be your own academic and find your own themes and you know how to to do that then perhaps you can take what might be quite a disparate group of poems that don't really have a theme and make them appear coherent and you can play that game and perhaps if you can't that might be slightly harder for you to do because there's this thing that you're only just just understanding yourself what each of these individual poems is there to do and to see them in a bigger Context is actually quite quite difficult, and it can feel like an imposition on your work. We can all do it. We can all take. I mean, anyone can play the game of taking two or three poems that have something in common with each other and saying this is the theme of my collection, placing those poems one at the beginning, one at the end, and one where the staples are, and and, and, and trying to fool people into thinking that, that, that the whole thing is a coherent whole. I mean, it's it's not a difficult game to play. But for some people, that could feel like, oh, yeah, this is actually quite nice. I'm making connections between my work. And for other people, that'll feel like I'm imposing something on my work. It doesn't feel like mine anymore. I do, th- I do wish that there was more scope for people to produce collections, and especially pamphlets, which, which are just, this is my best work. I'm not going to tell you anything about the connections between them. You, know, you, can, you can work it out if you want. You can get your own idea of who, of, 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 of who this poetic persona is, whether it's me or not. I mean, who knows whether we are... Are writing persona or not but I'm not going to tell you and I, and I, I think think it's I, I suspect it is more about selling books and talking about books than it is about the actual integrity of that collection this this desire for, for coherence
0: Yeah I, and I suppose I was just thinking there as well perhaps there's a freedom as a writer to write a very heavily themed collection of work for the purpose of moving away from it afterwards yeah. and feeling like you've closed the door. Absolutely. But that, of course, this all comes back to the individual choice. It shouldn't be something that we have to enter into as a matter of course as writers. Mm.
1: Um, I think actually I would say I'm in a very privileged position in that I just do what I do and I've fallen into it quite naturally. And I seem, my work seems to resonate equally. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm certainly not, anywhere near the top of either tree but my work seems to resonate equally with both audiences and that's not because i have made a conscious study of how to do that That's just the cards have fallen in quite a nice way for me which means that i can perform in different settings and i seem to fit there um and um and that and i think that and to some extent i think people you know people in my position are the lucky ones and that those whose work is very much for the page or very much on the theatrical side of things and may may not translate to the page quite so well i think they they have a harder time of it and those of us who are in the middle actually have an easier time of it so i think i think but it's um there are different craft skills that you'll learn in different places and i think this is the thing i think it's one thing to say that there shouldn't be an implicit hierarchy and I think it's another thing to say that they're the same thing. I think they are sort of the same thing for, for, for many people, myself included. But there are definitely... Um, if I read a, a small literary society and there are probably 20 people there, they're probably older, They've almost most of them would have been writing for decades. Um, there is, I think, a more precise... You will find a more precise use of language. That's not to say that there are not spoken word artists who use language in an absolutely forensic way there certainly are but in the main you will generally find a more forensic and precise use of language in those places and if you go to an event that is largely a spoken word event you will find not just a higher standard of performance but you will also find a greater attention to the to the sonic qualities of language and the thing that i would love to teach page poets even ones who read very well is links that actually what you say between poems, you don't, you're not introducing a poem, you're not necessarily explaining a poem, you're actually creating a performance. You're creating a persona that people can spend time with. And you know, you're, you're in people's company. And so the idea that either you read a poem without any introduction or your introduction consists of an explanation of what the poem you're about to read is about. Um, and you haven't really thought about those remarks until you get to the poem. I mean, the one thing that you will find at a spoken word event is that people are so much better what happens between the poems, and there's a, just a gulf the size of the Atlantic um, there, and and so though, and that's not to say that you can't have both of those skill sets, but I think there is no question that for for most, certainly for most new artists, there was a, an enormous amount to be learnt from going to a setting where there's a slightly different culture and a slightly different set of expectations, and make and producing work that works on those terms in those settings, even if you then come back to what you know. I really buy the idea that there's no hierarchy and there shouldn't be a status hierarchy, but I'd never quite go as far. I always get a little bit worried when people say, it's all poetry, as if the two cultures have nothing to learn from each other. And I think they've got a great deal to learn from each other. You also find different voices. If you go to page poetry events, you will, you will hear the voices of older women writing their life experiences in a way that you were not at a spoken word event. Spoken word events will be inclusive in lo- more inclusive in lots of other ways. So yeah, it's, it's it's you don't want to go so far to saying these are the same thing that you think if you know one... You've got nothing to learn from the other. But you do want to get rid of that idea that one is better than the other. I think this worries me, actually, about the sort of growth of critical papers
0: being written about spoken word in the last few Mm. years. I've met quite a number of people that are choosing spoken word for PhDs. And um, uh, I'm thinking of Katie Ailes, who's in in Scotland at the moment, who's with the Loud Poet uh, organisation up there. And obviously Lucy English, who's teaching at Mm. Bath Spa just up the road from us and he's a, he's a bristol-based poet what worries me is that it seems i'm, I'm not saying that i shouldn't have mentioned them now because i don't think either lucy or katie are yeah. necessarily doing this but i do but worry, yeah, I yeah, yeah but i do worry that these critical papers are talking of spoken word in a way that was traditionally that that was just mm. a language used for poetry because i think what will happen is that spoken word will appear will appear to fail because it is not the same thing yeah, i don't think it I think we lack a critical language around Mm. the spoken word, and I think it's too easy to dismiss spoken word because it can't be tied down and analysed in the same way that a a poem on a piece of paper can be or something that was deliberately written to be filmed. It may have existed in the moment, but it was always going to be archived, and the most spoken word is very fleeting, isn't it? It isn't Mm. isn't supposed to last in in its
1: original form. It's supposed to last ephemerately in in your mind. I'm and I'm not a big fan of I mean you talk about film, I'm not a big fan of performance videos. Every time I've seen a poet and I've seen their clips, I've had the same experience, which is, oh the clip's alright And you see them and actually I think even more with, with, with poetry than with music, I think it's really, really hard to capture on camera a performance film. I'm not talking about a more abstract poetry film where there's a filmmaker's art involved, but the kind of it's really hard to capture a film of a performance. That actually conveys the directness. Well, the camera will never capture what the audience captures, yeah. will it? And and I, I I've had that experience so many times of not being particularly excited to see someone because I've seen the films and thought, oh, that's all right, and then actually seeing them in the flesh and and having a totally different experience. So so I'm not actually convinced that that particular style of filming poetry by just pointing a camera at a, in a performer's you know at a performer when they were you know when they're performing or the poetry film, you know, the kind of performance style of a poetry film that seems very fashionable at the moment is the old kind of 80s pop video one where the poet is, walking, is taken out of the theatre and they're walking along and there's some kind of setting, usually an urban setting, but they're basically talking into the camera whilst supposedly doing something else, but actually not. It's just a kind of performance film on location. And I think, though, I think that's a really weird, bizarre thing to do to poetry. And often you, sometimes you get these bits of pseudo-dramatisation... So you know the poet, you have the poet talking to camera, and then there'll just be these fleeting glimpses of someone who's supposed to represent a character in the poem, and I, I just find that really weird. It's like it's like those eighties pop videos where where you know where Lionel Richie would 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 would, would you know there'd be a little drama. And you make that video to hello, you know? <laughs> I, I, I think surely, 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 we can do better. better be, be, better when it comes to um, capturing the energy of performance than that.
0: I think yeah, because you're going, you're veering dangerously towards the pop video that breaks down halfway yeah. through and goes into a scene in a restaurant, or it goes into conversation. And then because there was this that idea that a, a music video could be something different, but all you were really doing was ruining the thing that people loved, which was the track yeah. all along. I don't want to really get into the politics of the nationwide mm. advertising campaign, uh, but if you sort of set aside the question of whether you want to be involved with ad- advertising any company, never mind a... a Hard enough of, to make...
1: Anyone who is trying to make a living out of writing, who gets a gig working for an organisation that isn't actually, so far as we can tell, doing great evil in the world, I think I think I would not criticise them for taking the money but for aside, one second.
0: I have heard an interesting argument about, and it sort of feeds into what you're saying, is the way that... the videos are filmed the way that the adverts are filmed is that it it seems to be suggesting that this is just this poem happening in a a real life and quote air quotes real life situation Mm. but of course it's not because there's a camera crew there and someone's um i'm going to talk about matt abbott specifically because i know him and i don't want to talk about any of the other poets because i don't know him that well but matt's one of the first four and he's sitting on on the doorstep of a of a house and it seemingly the advert is trying to approach everyday life but of course there's nothing real about it's like a musical isn't yes. it you
1: know you so someone's talking you know you got character's doing something which is supposedly realistic or it's a stylized version of real life and then all of a sudden someone launches into a song yes. and it starts out very low and you're not even sure it's going to be a song and then all of a sudden they're going Wah! you know it's, it's it's the poetry equivalent of that um so actually what we're doing is we're doing a kind of mu- a strange kind of truncated snippet of musical theater with a poem I think every single one of those poets, if, if you had given them a similar brief but it wasn't a commercial brief and they weren't there to do whatever it is that's going to be most effective at selling mortgages or bank accounts or whatever it is that Nationwide is hoping you're coming through the doors to, to ask for, every single one of those people would have done that differently if you'd just given them a budget and said, make a fun for your poem. Of course they would. I don't know what the ethical problem is with that particular style of presentation it's just possibly not what the poets would have necessarily done
0: ethically i don't feel, feel there's really a question you either want mm, you're yeah, either course, happy yeah. with doing that work or not because advertising is not real it doesn't matter what you're if you're getting involved yeah. with advertising bare. that's not i've worked on car commercials like as a prop builder and i was not particularly happy with it but i would i worked as a prop builder and mm. it wasn't really you are you're either in that business or you're not and i chose to yeah. get out of the business because you're but you were just saying, one company is not necessarily better than mm. any other. And you could perhaps float around and have one job every four mm. years where you're working for some amazing charity, but you're still working for a film company yeah, and they're still taking their money yeah. from someone else. And it's all the very muddy water. And I think that's why I chose to mention Matt is because I think Matt will trust me enough to know that I'm not necessarily criticising, I'm well, not criticising mm. his decision to do the work. It's just interesting that there's been very few people talking about what that situation has done to the poems and mm. what that situation has done to the poet's message, which is, I suppose, what we're trying to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, around I,
1: around. I, I've always assumed that if, you, if, if someone says, someone approaches you and says, I want your poem, whichever poem it is, for this piece, you know, like like, um, yeah, Greg's come to me and say, I want your poem because that poem really says Greg's to us. Then I think you sacrifice the poem if you if they say we want your skills we want you to write something which fits this film then obviously you're not you're not giving up a work of art to them you're you're offering your skills as you were and you know we know what the issues are with that and you might make a judgment as to who they were and what they were and do it on a case by case basis if you actually give them something i think it's not yours anymore i do think that mm because quite plainly the meaning of anything you know if you're if I give a poem to Greg's and that poem is seen by millions of people in an ad break as opposed to the literally hundreds of people i might actually perform it to in in theaters then quite clearly the meaning of that poem is by Gregg's products it no longer means whatever else I thought it I thought it meant and it might be by Gregg's products because they give you all these nice feelings nice complicated feelings. That were in this poem but it still means buy greg's products and you know i mean clearly you're you're happy to endorse that message because you did so at the beginning of this podcast yes yeah, no, absolutely yeah, yeah well, I, I'm... And, and the seagulls are clearly listening <laughs> yeah yeah,
0: yeah. I, I need to clarify it was an endorsement of greg's but not an endorsement of seagulls but not nor was it an attack on seagulls nor because i'm not i'm seagulls. not denying the seagulls right to no. see food and try and take it it's very interesting i i I attended a book launch recently mm. by a, a Bristol-based writer called Tim D, and he's just mm. written a book about uh, observing seagulls mm. in uh, urban environments. Which again goes back to questioning whether Bristol is uh, connected to the sea, or whether it is an urban landscape. And uh, he spoke. I think most of the book is is questioning whether we do reduce seagulls purely to scavengers and purely focused on because we don't see their because they are so Mm. out of their So so sitting now outside of their natural landscape, we don't see the other side of their life. We don't see any aspects of their communal nature with each other. We just see them fighting over food or, um, or our discarded food and how we frame them in Mm. our own landscape. Yeah. So I do think it's fascinating. Like I, I feel bad that I judged, that beady-eyed, mean-faced seagull. But I've decided that that shaped face is mean. Do you know what I mean? He just has, they
1: just have a beak, don't they? I mean, yeah. um, if you, I mean, the garden at the back of this house, you get seagulls flying overhead, and they're very beautiful. If you see, if you just look up at them, you know, and there's, there's this nice light. We're in northern latitudes; it's very soft light, and 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 you look up, and they're they're flying overhead. They're very graceful. Um, but yeah, they they are they're like us there, and they're they're an aggressive species that uses the power of the crowd to intimidate others. You know, and we we can we can identify with this because we're very similar. Yeah, but I think I think we're entitled to our own experience of seagulls. However, however much we may lack an understanding of what's really going on from the seagulls' point of view,
0: I think as humans we want to be corvids, like we want to see ourselves as crows and seemingly very intelligent. But as people and definitely poets, we're much closer to seagulls in that we're sort of. <laughs> picking and stealing stuff as we i think i think that's what I, I felt really bad in myself that i saw this i was i felt angry that this seagull had stolen my pasty yet i would take that I- idea and uh re-appropriate see, it as I, my appropriate I, I
1: think seagulls are more like people who chase likes on social media than they are <laughs> like poets because as a podcast producer i'm also that kind of person yeah so. <laughs> um i think the poet is the first seagull you know, the seagull who thinks, ah, no, one, there's a bin here. I'm going to look for something in that bin. And, and, and they don't even know what they're going to find. And they rummage around in that bin and they come out with something. And then sort of, you know, the other seagull's going, you idiot. Bin? What are you doing there? And then all of a sudden they... It's quite good, I quite admire that. And then the the first seagull gets pushed to the to one side because no one wants to admit that the the seagull got there first. You've got this big crowd coming up with a really crude version of the first seagull's message, which is dive into the bin and get stuff. The first seagull was more motivated by by the beauty of discovery, by the uncertainty, by this, you know, by by the you know, is this bin a source of food? Is it not a source of food? What does that what does it mean to be a seagull hovering on the brink of what might be food, what might be and it's more interested in playing with that subway wrapper. And discovering what it feels like and feeling that catch up on its feathers than it is actually in 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 just just grabbing something, but then the people that come in afterwards they just they, they want to use that idea they turn it into something very very simple, you know we're all going to dive in we're going to have a massive fight we're going to come out with the food we're going to spread the stuff all over the city centre if any of the pigeons come near it we'll come, we'll kill them and, and 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 I think so I think yeah I think I think the, I think the, the social media popularity seekers are, are 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 most of the seagulls and the poets are the kind of pioneer seagulls who get there. get there first but maybe don't always get the benefit from it i mean i definitely think
0: my experience of that seagull today has been colored by the fact that all through the summer there are similar stories on the front cover of the tabloids about seagulls stealing food from people at the seaside had i had any idea that that seagull was somehow avant-garde and was the first it Probably to ever wasn't do that. the
1: first seagull to go after to go exactly, Greg's pattern. Exactly.
0: So, but had it been that, I would have revered it in the same way. Yeah. I mean, it would. I would have held it much more, much higher. It was, esteem, the, jo- it was the
1: Jonathan Livingston seagull of, of, of <laughs> Bristol in the in, in the what were we in now? The Nortinis or what are yeah, they Nortinis. called? I mean, yeah, we'll go with Nortinis. Yeah. Um, then again, I mean, I think I mean the the thing we're sort of on the edge of here is that the language that used to, that's used to describe seagulls is. Exclusively describes the experience of being plagued by seagulls, and does not in any way describe the experience of being a seagull. And we all recognise that, that, of course, there are there's an analogy between, or maybe not an analogy, maybe it's exactly the same thing. You know, the kind of the way the way that the way that you will write about a seagull, and the way that, of course, vulnerable, voiceless groups of humans will be written about. And we we recognise that thing. I suspect the seagulls are relatively untroubled by the way in which you're in you know, the metro describes them as a pest and a menace and unless there is actually an organised seagull cull inspired by that by that language it probably doesn't really touch the seagulls lives very much because they're not really that interested in what humans think about them as far as I can tell maybe I'm wrong but I suspect I'm not wrong so so it's kind of strange isn't it that, that we can we can recognise that that sort of that that othering, and we recognise that it's something that's deeply threatening in other contexts but it's seagulls and seagulls unless you are a passionate ornithology is yeah. Ornithology? ornithology yeah, yeah I, I i was worried that i was talking about the ear nose and throat cavity but i'm not i'm talking about birds that's good um yeah and, and unless you're really passionate about seagulls it's probably not 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 a big thing but it does it does say something about how you know if there if there were cats for example you wouldn't be able to write about about the inconvenience they cause purely and you know without, without actually showing some empathy for the cat itself i think we we may may have wandered a long way (laughs) off track i think i think
0: it's great because it it, it, we would have just talked about the correct use of language in terms Mm -hmm. of imagery and ideas anyway and it's much more interesting to talk about it in a a more concrete way Mm -hmm. and more i think that was more focused than most poets would
1: yeah i'm a very unconcrete writer actually yeah which is interesting actually because you know i i wouldn't be so grand as to say that i got a subject but and i think this comes from the spoken word scene where there's a lot of pressure to have a story to have a kind of writing which to write a subject which is very closely connected to yourself um i think sometimes it gets too goes too far and i think people find feel under pressure to write their own trauma which i think is really unhealthy i don't mean that writing your trauma is unhealthy and sharing it where you wish to is unhealthy but i think the, the people feeling under pressure to do so is is very unhealthy Of course, there are many, many people who are on the point of talking about or disclosing things that have affected them very deeply. But of course, there are many other people for whom those things remain impossible to speak about for all kinds of reasons. And I think one of the things that I write a lot about are there are a lot of people in my poems to whom you can have an inference that something awful has happened. Maybe an external event, maybe something internal to them, but the poem isn't going to tell you what it is. And that's something that I do, that's, well, it's something I noticed in my writing, but it's something I've encouraged in my writing. It's something I've done quite consciously. I think it's important to write some of those experiences of dealing with really bad things without giving, without necessarily feeling you owe the audience the reveal as to what has actually happened. And there's an awful lot of that in my writing. And if I had come to the stage of understanding my own writing, when I put this pamphlet out, um that i have now that would have probably been the organizing principle of the pamphlet but of course you know early in your career you don't always have that understanding of what it is that's actually linking together a lot of these things or you don't necessarily have the language for it because poets were as rubbish as anyone else at actually finding plain simple language to describe what's going on for them especially as writing is so much of an exploration and you don't know you know if you knew if you knew where you were going (laughs) You wouldn't need to write the poem. Goodness knows why. There's no need for a poem. If there were, they're completely frivolous. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if, if, if there was a com- if there was simple, universally understood language that expressed perfectly the thing you were going to say, then why on earth write a poem about it? It doesn't need a poem. It needs you to say it in that simple, commonly understood language. Um, poetry is is all about finding language for things for which language isn't readily available.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that all poems ever do is highlight the lack that mm. we
1: have in a language that we feel yeah. covers everything. You know that poem? And it's been written by so many poets in so many different ways. It's the poem about there's a word in this language that you don't speak, oh, reader, um, which I'm going to write in italics to show that it has an untranslatable meaning. And this word actually says something that we need a thousand words to say. Wouldn't it be great if we had that word? no. No, it wouldn't, because then, if we had a word for everything, all we would be doing is shouting nouns at each other, and, and everything that, that as writers we value, which is that, that struggle to connect with each other through words, and everything we value in conversation, which is that, that kind of, we see each other straining to say things, and we get a glimpse of it, and we think, yes, I've got something from you there. That would all go. We would just be going, perfect word, perfect word, perfect word, perfect, it would be crap. It'd be rubbish. We do not want to import all of these fantastic words. What's exciting is the sudden revelation that that is something that you have to make complicated, that is simple for someone else, and that this thing flows both ways. That insight is fascinating, and that's what all these poems are about. But the actual, wouldn't it be nice if we had that? Wouldn't it be nice if we had a word for everything? No, no, please... Please save us from having a word for everything. I think we may have highlighted the cliche that we were searching for <laughs> earlier.
0: I mean, that's certainly one of them. It um, particularly annoys me after... Untranslatable in... words yes. in italics to
1: show how untranslatable they are, yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I read one more, I mean, this, um, this is probably more to do with um, Sunday newspaper supplements, but mm. the word hraith in, in Welsh, which is that sort of homely, being homesick but not in the way that we would... It's more of a longing and a melancholy. And also the Scandinavian word, hygge, which is for someone who uh, speaks Norwegian is particularly annoying because one, absolutely, why do we need a word that explains this sort of cosy, by the fireside mm. feeling, which exists predominantly in countries where a cabin in the mountainside you know, would, would sort of make you feel like that. It's also a complete mistranslation and misunderstanding what, of what Norwegians mean by that word. You know, this idea that we would package it through scatter cushions and sofas Mm. and candles and reappropriate it in that way comes back to this idea that as a poet you could somehow you can unlock the meaning in this one word that doesn't exist in the language that you're writing in predominantly and only you can bring it to the reader Mm. and package it in a way that yeah takes it out of all context yeah
1: and of course you're failing if you're using that word if you're putting that word in italics and placing it in the poem unless the whole poem is about the kind of you know your relationship with that word in that context. You know, the whole purpose of a poem is to explain whatever it is that you are trying to communicate in the language that you're writing in. So if that word remains there starkly untranslatable in italics, that to me is an advertisement of the poet's failure. Um I'm gonna make myself really unpopular, I'm gonna discover that all my poetry friends have written poems like this
0: <laughs> Yeah. I'm uh, I'm gonna have a horrible time this week. I'm gonna be going through my poems and uh discovering all the norwegian words i've now put in in italics but that's my own issue anyway because i completely completely agreement with you time is uh as it does is doing that thing where it continuously moves forward so we're gonna finish with a third and final poem, but we'll just reiterate that your pamphlet complicity is available through smith doorstop uh, as part of the laureate's Choice series i'll put a link in the episode description where people can buy that from can people find you on social media do you
1: do that as Uh, a poet it's not no i I, I will at some point join twitter but i'm scared of twitter yeah because i it's an absolute nonsense yeah um (laughs) i don't really believe in brevity which is a strange thing for a writer to say but generally in my experience people who think that that you 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 talk more sense the fewer words you use are Oh, assholes! So um, it's like it's like people who tell it straight. I think we should all use more words. I think we should all speak and hear more words. What I will do for Twitter
0: users, I will, as much as possible, share details about any spoken word gigs or any readings mm. that Tom is doing. So if you follow us, I'm not going to read them out. I will read them out in the, in the outro. You can just listen to the end of the uh, episode. It's only a few minutes away. I will just thank you now, Tom, for joining me. Well, I say joining. I'm joining you. We're in your living room yeah, but home, so it's it's, it's
1: it's we can we can maintain the facade, of the, the fiction. <laughs> you know, this is. I am um, here in um, Lunar Poetry Towers, gazing out at the um, skyline of Bristol from a height so enormous beautiful. that the fact that we're in in, in W one is is no obstacle, and um, and yeah, the. Um, some very, very intrepid high-flying seagulls are, are, are soaring several thousand feet beneath us. Crumbs of pasty around their beaks. Absolutely. That's, what, that's, <laughs> that's what's really happening. Um, everything in this conversation makes perfect sense. If you know where we are and what we're doing, it just doesn't make sense otherwise. I'm going to finish with a poem whose first line is also its title. Um, which means I'm not going to introduce it. I was talking with my marvellous man-friend about our girlfriends with their friends and how it looks so good the way they laugh together like a dance you could learn but not well. And how it's hard sometimes to believe you could be worthy of time they could spend laughing like that when I noticed he wasn't talking back. He had a kind of, yes, I thought that, not exactly that, but close enough look. So I stopped looking for the mercy of regular trips to the bar and the toilet, and looked at him instead. He said that no one tells you how friendship is a mystery, like love, because that would be to admit that the universe never promised us friends. But sometimes it's a thing you have to say out loud. So I said yes, it was a mystery, how he was reflecting light like a 70s space-funk tinfoil pearly king. What light was there to reflect? It couldn't come from us, because we're extroverts, and our best enemies say we can only drain light from them. Is it possible that our best enemies are wrong?
0: you stuck around. I'm still being eyeballed by squirrels. I hope you enjoyed the final pre-break episode. As I said at the start I'll probably be back with this podcast in April though I have some live recordings of some events on my hard drive at home which I may just release as bonus episodes in the new year if it doesn't feel like too much work. I am supposed to be having a break. That's a reminder for myself, I'm not very good at taking breaks. For updates, find us at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at Silent underscore Tongue on Twitter, and over at our website, LunarPoetryPodcast.com. And at all of those places, you'll also find updates there about my upcoming book. Whatever shape that takes. With Hester Glock Press. Find our companion podcast produced by my wife Lizzie, At a poem a week on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again to Arts Council England for their continued financial support since the summer of 2016 with some breaks. I won't go into that now. I've definitely forgotten to mention something but sometimes in life you just need to let things go, right? I'll speak to you a lot next spring when the leaves Will hopefully be back on the trees and not under my feet. I'm going to do an Adam Buxton impression now.